I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? It has been a long time coming. We're going to finish the book of James today. Um, I know that when we go through an extended series like this, it can be taxing uh, because it seems like we are just slogging through something. But uh, if you if you recall, for those of you that are new to our class, one of the reasons why we format our teaching the way that we do is that I have noticed over the last several years of ministry that uh, our generation is full of teachers who essentially practice Google theology. And the idea is that we come to God's Word, uh, like we do, do to Google, we ask a question, and all we want is to entertain the answer in our brain. We don't actually want to understand what the text actually says. And so that leads a lot of teachers to teach topically. Not that there's anything wrong with topical teaching, where I take a subject and I essentially survey Scripture and I see what Scripture says about that topic. That can be really useful. It can be really helpful. But the challenge with that is that we end up just kind of entertaining these theological ideas and not actually digging through the context of what Scripture says. And it's important for you uh, to understand not just what the Bible says, but what the Bible means. And as your teacher and as your shepherd, one of the things that God has really convicted me about is modeling that for you as we go through Scripture. So that means that we do take a little bit extra time to go through a passage of Scripture, and we do take a couple of verses at a time. And while that's more time-consuming, what it does is, it, is it's framing our perspective about how to think about the Bible. So I hope that, that this study through James has been uh, beneficial to you and has been encouraging. I know it has been for me, and it's been very convicting, even to the point of conviction this morning. Um, so as we uh, close out the year and as we pray about what next year is going to look like, just remember, I, I just want to remind you that that's our focus in, our, in this class, is that we want to take God's Word seriously because... It's not just about you guys coming and me spoon-feeding you truth. I want you to have the equipment necessary, the training necessary to be able to raise your children and also to have healthy marriages. And that all starts with, with the Bible. So that's where we're going to finish today. We're going to finish with James chapter 5, verses 13 through 19. Um, and to follow up on our lesson from last week, he's talking about um, the miseries of the rich and how we should, be, we should have endurance. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, um, in the context of enduring through challenges and suffering, um, what it means to uh, diagnose our, our condition. So beginning in verse 13, he says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray for him, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has, com if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to, to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would, be, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if any among you who, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let, uh, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Okay, so we're going to begin in verse 13 with prayer. So I've, I have, I have uh, titled this lesson, Our Spiritual First Aid Kit. And um, as you all are processing difficulty in your life or processing all of the issues of your life, it's important to know what that diagnostic looks like and to know, okay, well, what tools has God given us? So we're going to begin with prayer. So he starts in verse 13 and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Prayer, the, the purpose of prayer, if you remember, is to align our perspective with God's perspective. Okay, many times we approach prayer and we think that it's about us just letting God know what our needs are. And that is a part of it, but that's not all of it. The primary purpose of prayer is so that God can take our finite, limited perspective and align it with His. That's what He does. So we're turning over our will to His will. It aligns our, our will uh, to His. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 91, 1-4, through 4, that it is God's strength and the truth about who He is that protects us in our time of suffering. He says this in Psalm 91. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and a bulwark. The key to facing any suffering is to know ahead of time what we're going to run to in our trouble. So, in other words, if we're suffering, we're supposed to pray. We have to resolve in our minds before we get into a situation where we need God where we're going to run. So, that means we've got to cultivate within our family what are the things that we run to when we're stressed. What are the things that we run to when we are suffering? Do we run to worldly things or do we run to godly things? Now, we might say in our head, okay, no, God's my refuge. God is my fortress. I run to Him whenever I'm, whenever I'm tired or whenever I'm angry or whenever I'm frustrated. But you really have to take an account. What do you run to when you're frustrated, when you are overwhelmed? Do you run to your bed to sleep, to disconnect from reality? Do you run to a bottle of pills or to a bottle of liquor? Do you disconnect and run to your computer screen to pornography? Do you disconnect and run to food? Do you run to what? Do you run to shopping, TV, sports? The, the list goes on and on. What are we purposefully spending our energy dwelling on when we're in the midst of trouble? He says, if you are, if you are suffering, pray. You got to decide ahead of time. What am I going to run to whenever I am overwhelmed? We make a conscious decision that this is our. This these are the. This is the the muscle memory of my spirit. I'm going to run to Christ no matter what it is. I'm going to come to Him whenever I'm suffering. Prayer is God's strategy to train us to see the world like He does. It's how He communicates the truth of His Word and He teaches us. So when, when our first response is to run to prayer whenever we're suffering, what God does is He begins to train us to trust Him. The reason why we run to other things instead of Him is because we are easily overwhelmed in our ignorance. We don't know that God is, He cares about our our tiredness. He, we don't know that he cares about us in our suffering. And what happens is the enemy loves to introduce us to other things that are going to distract us from that refuge and fills our, our eyes, our, our minds with, with lies. It's how God, prayer is how God comforts us and he gives us wisdom. It's, it's our primary avenue for releasing our frustrations to God. Prayer is an incredible tool because it changes our perspective. Now notice this next thing in verse 13. He says, um, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. The second uh, item in our spiritual first aid kit is worship. Again, this aligns us to God's will. Many times whenever we're in the midst of our difficulty, we don't really feel like praising. But consider this. 
that a cheerful heart is a praise-filled heart. A heart that is that is that knows who God is, that has come to Him in prayer, that comes to Him in the midst of suffering, it produces a cheerfulness that no matter where we are, we are worshiping the Lord. So he says, if you're cheerful, we should be praising. A child of God who's been, who has developed this habit of coming to Him in their suffering will come to Him in praise when they're cheerful. Psalm 34.1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. And when we learn to run to the Father in our sufferings, there's no other place to go in our celebrations. It's because we begin to see Him in the hardship and we see Him even much more magnified in the plenty, in the harvest. God's, in the Old Testament, God used celebration as the cornerstone of the illustration of his character. When he tells the, the people of Israel in Leviticus 23 about their calendar and what their, their regular routine is going to look like, God intentionally said, hey, here are these feasts that I want you to put into your calendar. These are going to be moments in time throughout your regular annual year that are going to be celebrations of our relationship. That's an aspect of, of, of our lifestyle that, that tends to be diminished. It's like we think that um, that worship is limited to just what we do on a Sunday morning whenever, whenever Zach is leading us in worship, whenever the worship team is playing music. But worship is something that can happen all year round, every day. In fact, you got to ask yourself, what, what am I marinating my home in? Worship can be an incredible thing for us. As you get, get ready for the day, as you, you know, you're taking your shower and you're getting dressed and you're doing, you're, you're getting your, your face all put together, like, Turn on worship music. Imagine if your children, if that's what they, what they recognize as the first part of the day is, is worship. What a great way to reframe your perspective on your day. You get up and you're tired, and just to have music playing. I remember there, there are, um, in seminary, one of my professors uh, said one time that music is the primary way that we learn theology. And I thought, wait a second, that's... That doesn't sound right, because normally I think, okay, well, we learn theology from being in the Word, or we, we, we learn theology from being under someone's teaching, uh, you know, someone who's a theologian. But imagine the simple truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Music, worship, is the primary way that we learn how to see God. And not just for the sake of our children, but for our sake as well. Many times we, we forget the usefulness of worship because we think that it's something that is just relegated to, to church life when we're together, but that's not true. The psalmist continues in 34 and he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We should be teaching our children. We should be teaching ourselves. We should be teaching our spouse through our lifestyle about worship, that it's a cornerstone of, of who we are, our existence. Authentic praise emphasizes God's, uh, God over anything else. And if He's an afterthought to our celebrations, or if He only gets a token reference of, uh, in our praise on the way to elevating our accomplishments, we're missing out on the point that James is trying to make here. He says, if you're, if you're cheerful, if you see God doing incredible things in your life, worship Him. We tend to, to, to go, come to God when we are overwhelmed and whenever we're depressed, but we forget about Him in times of harvest. And I, I, I can't help but wonder now that we're uh, coming into, I guess, middle-aged life, 
that that's the intention. It's like, God, why am I always perpetually suffering with something? Why am I always going from one catastrophe to the next? Like it's just one thing after another after another. There's always another bill to pay, whatever. It's because I tend to only remember him in those moments. I tend to only think about God in the crisis. But I should be training my heart to worship him when I'm cheerful. The third thing is confession. Look at verses 14 through 18. He says, if, Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer that offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Okay, so once again, we're, we see the power and the necessity of prayer and confession. One of, the, one of the challenges of living in the world that we do, I don't just mean our generation, but I guess our reality, is that sickness is a consequence of both sin, sin directly and indirectly. We, we, we will physically die because of the consequence of sin on our, on our bodies, on the world. There's chaos and there's wickedness in the world because of sin. There's what the Bible calls pestilence. There are, there are many consequences of sin, and this happens. We can, be, um, we can suffer injury. We can suffer sickness either as a byproduct. Someone develops cancer, not because of anything that they've done, but because their body has just decided to turn on itself. Or it could be that someone does harm to us physically, and we are not to blame. Or we live reckless lifestyles, and we cultivate in ourselves a destructive reality. But what James is saying here is that the process of healing begins with a sick person calling for prayer from others and confession. The, the, there's a couple of elements here I want you to be thinking about. That this exposes that healing and faith are intrinsically tied together. Now, this is, this is an uncomfortable truth because more than likely you have gone through a season, or if you haven't, you will, where you pray and God doesn't seem to answer your prayer. And you think, you know what? I don't understand why God answers other people's prayers, but he, but he seems to neglect mine. Well, let's talk about that. What gets in the way of our prayers? Well, Mark tells us in chapter 6 of his gospel that Jesus was doing ministry and he, he was unable to perform miracles in his hometown because people didn't believe in him. People didn't have faith that he was the Messiah, his own neighbors that he grew up with. Later, in Mark 11, he said that there are no limits for those who will put their faith in God. James says in chapter 4 that God doesn't answer the prayers of the wicked person because you're praying for things to consume them on your own pleasures. James tells us in chapter 1 of his, of, his, of his letter here that we should ask God in faith, not doubting. The idea is that healing and answered prayers, they are directly connected with faith. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that if I have enough faith, I'm always going to be well? Or that God's always going to come through whenever I'm sick? That's not what that means. What it means is that through the process of prayer and worship and submission to God's will, we turn our lives over to where God, I don't really care what the outcome is. This is, this is this, I'm, I'm going to live according to your will and your will be done. Even Jesus prayed that God would relieve him of the physical constraints of having to die on the cross. He said, Lord, if there's any way that we can do this some other way, please. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. That doesn't, change, that doesn't tell us, oh, well, you know, I'm going to pray for God to heal me, but, you know, well, if he doesn't, I, got, I guess I'm just going to be fine with that. Again, going back to what we talked about just a second ago, that God cares about the consequences of sin on our lives. 
And I firmly believe that, that God does want to provide healing unless there is something greater at stake than just the sickness. I think about Job. Job prayed that God would relieve him of his suffering in the midst of his, of his suffering. And yet, God said no in the moment. We look back through the course of history and we see, okay, well, no, God was faithful and he restored Job and all these things, but that didn't save him from the suffering of the moment. There was a greater thing at stake there. Jesus was righteous, uh, and, and yet he had to submit himself to the uncomfortable truth of, of, of the reality that God had put him in. But that doesn't change that we can't be defiant and rebellious towards God and expect to have our prayers answered. I mentioned this, I think, yesterday. Maybe I can't remember if I mentioned this here or in Journey Group. That you know, I t- my, my prayer requests tend to be, I pray that God would, would intervene in a, in a medical situation within our family. And really deep down, like I pray God would, would intervene, but really deep down, I, I really think, well, I'm just going to wait it out because it'll work itself out. Um, or I think, well, I'm smart enough. I can figure this out for myself. And it's just a matter of treatment and finding the right medication or whatever. I don't really have faith that he'll heal me or that he'll heal Lindsay or he'll heal our girls. In my mind, I know God is good. I know that God wants to heal us. But really... I have a lack of faith because I think that I'm the one that just needs to figure it out. But notice what he says here. That healing comes not just from faith, but also from confession. Now, what is confession other than the the action of faith? To say, God, I believe that you will save me. So I'm going to confess my sins, not just to you, but also to my brothers and my sisters, so that I can experience your salvation because... We can believe that Jesus died on the cross all day long. We can believe that he raised from the dead all day long. But until we actually put our faith in him, we actually say, okay, I'm going to relinquish control of my life to you. He's just a theological thought in our brain. Because as James said earlier, even the demons believe and they tremble. They know who God is, but they have no faith. Salvation comes through faith, not just through acknowledging that God is God. This passage is about God's people being called to focus on Him, not their circumstances. We're the most effective when we are all moving towards God's will, and that's why He calls us to confess to one another. We shouldn't let our prayers just be about avoiding discomfort, but rather growing in righteousness. And this is expressed most clearly when we gather together to move forward in submission corporately. So He says, bring everybody together. We are, um, we are plagued with this idea that our faith is an individual effort. And it's not. From the beginning until now, God has said it is not good for man to be alone, and so he's placed us within the community. Confession is not just to God, it's to other other believers, people who are trustworthy in our life. Consider this. If you think that your faith is personal or that it's private, Adam was in the garden, had a perfect relationship with God. There was no sin in the world. He had had discipline and control over everything in his life. There was nothing that he was not responsible for. He had the perfect environment. And yet, God says in Genesis 1, it's not good. It's not good that man is alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. We are meant to do life in a community, but that doesn't just mean being in the same physical space. That means actually sharing intimate and dirty parts of our life with each other. So that God can heal us. Because once we speak them out loud, have you ever noticed that those, those fears and those anxieties tend to go away once we actually articulate them to another human being? It's funny how that works. 
that when we confess our sins to each other, that it brings healing. And then he uses this illustration of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he meant Elijah wasn't a perfect man. He, he had massive mental health issues. Elijah was not really successful when it comes to ministry. We talked about last week that he, he is, has this massive confrontation with the, the, the priests of Baal. God calls fire from heaven, and you would think there would be a massive revival that breaks out. Elijah runs for his life. He ends up hiding in the mountains. So much so that he gets frustrated with God and he says, might as well just kill me now. And God says, you think you're alone? There's 7,000 other men that haven't bent their knee to Baal. You've isolated yourself from your community and now you think that you're all by yourself. Community is a, is a, is a massive aspect for what we do. And so Elijah, he had faith and he was persistent it's not just about the process, it's about our resolve for the Lord's will. He said, so if you go through and you read that account in 1 Kings chapter 17 and chapter 18, what's interesting is that as Elijah is praying for rain, it hasn't rained for three years, three and a half years. As Elijah's praying for rain, he keeps sending his, his servant to go check the clouds. He prays, goes and checks, prays, goes and checks. Seven times he does this. And eventually he sees a little bitty cloud on the horizon. Something that God has been teaching me in the last several weeks, is about persistence in my prayer. And spending time in the Word, going through journey stuff this last week, um, the Lord said something that really shook my mind, that or shook my spirit, that, that said that essentially what God told me is that he will, he will answer my prayers when I care about them as much as He does. If God is truly the only way that I'm going to be able to make it through what I'm going through, then why do I pray once and forget? Why do I think, okay, God, I said it once, so now you got it. Or am I intentionally seeking out His will to know Him? So in the process, I don't miss it along the way. Elijah was persistent. He was faithful and he was persistent in his prayer. So are you struggling with something physical? Some physical ailment? Something that is, is complicated, that, that, that you're in danger physically? Yes, are you praying? Number two, do you have faith? But thirdly, are you being persistent? Are you actually trying to work forward towards a solution? Or are you just simply saying, okay, well, God's got it, so I'm just going to be apathetic about it. God's trying to train us. The last thing that's in our spiritual first aid kit is accountability. Look at verses 19 and 20. Brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We should be looking out for those in our community who have been drawn away by sin. You know, going back to this idea of, of having a personal faith that I don't necessarily share with other people because it's just for me, right? The implication is that I have what it takes in order to have a right relationship with God. But everything that we've read in Scripture, especially over this, the course of this book, has been that everything is done within community. And one of, the, one of the dangers of sin is that most of the time, actually I would wager 99% of the time, when we're drawn away from sin, we are oblivious to our danger. It says in chapter 1 that we, everyone is drawn away by their own lust and enticed. The idea is that being, I'm being deceived into disobedience. Well, that's the nature of community. When somebody is getting close to the edge of a cliff, that we, if we have sincere concern for them and we have a sincere relationship and, and we have God's priorities, we're going to go try to get that person and tell them of their danger, warn them of their danger. That's what he's saying here is that accountability is not a dirty word. It's actually an asset for the kingdom. 
If you went to the doctor and he knew that you had cancer and yet he didn't want to tell you you had cancer because that would be bad news, would he be doing his job? Absolutely not. Our job is to be accountable to one another. Godly people are genuinely concerned about others. Just like Jesus' illustration of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one that's lost, we should have the same attitude towards others. Sin blinds us to our danger. It's, it's, an, it's a genuine expression of love for a brother or sister to call us out and to point us to the error of our way in order to turn us back to the truth. And notice what he says here, that if we, that if we successfully turn someone away from their sin, that they will save both their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In order for us to walk in God's, um, in God's community and everything that He has promised for us, we have to acknowledge and resolve ourselves that we are a part of a family of believers. When we neglect to be a part of God's family, we do so at our own peril. Because what happens is we begin to to teach ourselves that being with God's people or being in community with God's people is optional. I know that today was a difficult day to get out of the house. Pouring down rain, 40 degrees outside, it's nasty out there. And you're dragging kids through the parking lot and their blankets are getting wet and their coats are getting wet and they're screaming and then there's all the things, right? But we do the we, we, we make God's community a priority because not only is it good for us, but it's how God holds us close to Himself. We're part of God's community because it's a way that, that God can help us navigate these difficulties without falling prey to habitual sin. <coughs> this community is a precious thing. This accountability is a precious thing because it teaches us how to see other people the way that God sees us. Now, consider this, that if love is the denial of self for the benefit of others, then the opposite of love is a self-centered apathy that easily dismisses the damnation of others. If love is the denial of self for the benefit of others, then the opposite is not hate. The opposite of love is a self-centered apathy that, is easily dis- that easily dismisses the damnation of others. You know, the challenge for us in our generation is that we are all disconnected. We hear people talk about it all the time. We're, we're the most connected generation ever, but we are disconnected. Have you ever noticed that if there is something wrong between you and someone else, that as long as you're not in physical proximity to them, you tend to not think about it? But the moment that you're in physical proximity with somebody that you're at odds with, you're immediately distracted by the situation. Have you ever considered that God has made it that way on purpose? so that you can always be seeking to be right with other people. But we, but we live in a generation that's cultivated this idea that if, that if you're at odds with somebody, we're just going to cut them out of our life. That's not God's intention. Accountability is a key part of how we're supposed to live and to do well here, on, here, here within his community. So it leads us to our, our questions here. What have you trained yourself and your family to run to? Do you know how to use your spiritual first aid kit? Have you cultivated within your home an attitude of persistent and honest prayer? Do you actually seek God's help for things? Or is He simply just a throwaway piece of your life? How are you cultivating worship? 
Are you training your yourself? Are you training your spouse? Are you tr- is your home a home that people know that when trouble happens or when celebration happens, your first response is to go to your Father in heaven? Or is it like, oh, really? I didn't know they were. I didn't know they were believers. I didn't know they went to church. Oh, by the way, if you go to church, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a believer. Have you cultivated a spirit of confession that you will call people? to your side whenever you are going through difficulty, when you're going through a, a physical trial, have you searched your heart to see, okay, is this, is this a consequence of sin that, that I'm responsible for? Or is it something that God has laid on me so that he can, because He's wanting to get my attention? Have I intentionally shared my struggles with others and asked them to pray for me, trusting that in the confession to others and in the submission to prayer that God will heal me? And have I cultivated within my family a love for accountability? Do I surround myself with believers who are going in the same direction so that I will not get lost myself? Have you trained yourself to run to the Father? Or do you know how to use your spiritual first aid kit? Can you diagnose these things for yourself and for your family? Our lessons in James have been a... um, have been an exercise in looking at Discipleship 101, what it means to be a believer. These are the basics. The basics. So where do we go from here? Well, that's up to you. Over the next several uh, months, I've been praying about our our theme for next year, and I'm not going to share it quite yet, but um, I really feel like the Lord has been uh, has been challenging me and challenging us that we spent this year, this is the year of the disciple, and we've gone through all of these basic things. I think it's time for us to go into the 201 class to stretch ourselves even more, to go deeper. My desire for us as a class is that um, we are known as people who know their Bibles and know it well, that know it deeply. And I want to do my best to equip you to do those things. As I'm exploring and learning what God has for me, as I'm, as I'm growing in, in, in my walk with Him, I want you to be a part of that. And so um, we're going to move forward in a couple of serious ways in the coming weeks to get ready for next year. Um, so please be praying about that because God has something for us. He's got something for our children, and He has something for our community here at Evergreen. So I hope that you're ready. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.